prayer for so many people is a last-ditch effort. We've tried everything ourselves. We've done everything to fix the problem that we're praying over. We're forced to pray over. We can't fix it, so therefore we have to turn to the divine. It's kind of like a 911 call. But I want to challenge you today that prayer ought not be your last line of defense, but rather prayer should be your first line of offense. That it should be actually the first thing that happens. It ought to be the last thing that we do as we end the day. Somebody said it like this, praying without ceasing is like opening up your day in a phone call with God, never hanging up until the evening, until you go to bed and then saying, good night, God, as you go to sleep yourself. And then realizing all through the night that he could call you at any moment, he could awaken you as he does so often. As Isaiah talks about, morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens me as one who is taught. And so God awakens us because he wants to talk with us. Prayer is not a last-ditch effort. It is not our last line of defense. It is our first line of offense. Henry Luce, founder of Time Life magazine, who was really kind of in the, tw- in the 20th century, became kind of the mogul, the magnet of the, of the American magazine world that is now all digital and things have died off and gone on. But in that day and age, he set the bar for journalism and reporting by magazine and the incredible photography around the world and capturing life and so forth. But before Henry Luce became this mogul of media, he was first a missionary's kid. He grew up on a compound and his dad was the headmaster of a missionary school where he went and taught. And it was an incredible story to watch, uh, to kind of hear the, the story unfold about his life and about how every night they lived on this compound and every night it was the rhythms of dad and, and Henry to go uh, walk through the compound and just talk about the day. Talk about their experiences. Talk about their highs and lows. Talk about the challenges. Be philosophical about life. Literally, they just walked and talked. And it was as if Mr. Luce and Henry were talking as if they were best friends. But yet it was a father and it was a son. And Henry will tell you, or before his passing, he would tell you that that was the relationship-defining moment for him. And how he remembers his dad to the very last moment. That it was like friendship. It was like a father and a son, but it was like friendship. This is what the biographer said. Their, their bond was light. It was tight because they were friends. Both father and son nourished by the relationship. When I look at that, I think that is what prayer is supposed to be. It is this father-son, yes, he is my authority. Yes, I am his, 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 his child. And yes, I report to him. And yes, he loves and cares for me as a heavenly father. But yes, we are also friends. And we should walk. And we should talk. And we should walk and talk about life and share about life. And when you go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, as we talked about a few months back, we talk about them walking with God in the cool of the evening. And when God, when they sinned finally and the separation began to happen, they were missing their time with God or God was missing his time with them. And I hope we realize this, that this is a life principle that you just need to hang your hat on, hang your faith on, that God pursues, God pursues a love relationship with you that is real and personal. 
That God initiates, God does the initiating of that relationship and he pursues us in a love relationship that is real and personal. Take your Bibles and be finding the book of Genesis. Shouldn't be too difficult. (laughs) Go to the first book and then go to chapter 15. We want to continue in, in, in our study and we want to look at the friend of God. We've been talking about the friend of God. Well, let's talk about the friend of God. And what does that friendship look like? Well, you, when you look closely at uh, Abram's life with, uh, with uh, God, there is a clear friendship. He's called that. But we see that a lot of that is tied to his own personal encounters and relationship with God. And that is marked by prayer. And it is, it is in each of these encounters that we're going to see throughout our study of the life of Abraham, it's like a new stake in the ground is put in there. And God shows himself to him. He experiences him in an incredible way. And God puts a stake in the ground. Abram puts a stake in the ground to remember him. Just like 20 years ago when Grace Point Church started. There was a stake in the ground in Lori and I's heart that we put a stake in the ground and we said that God, you're doing this. We're not, we're only a part of what you're doing. And I want to invite you to the 20th celebration of our church, a birthday party of, of birthday parties, if you will, on, uh, the, the first Sunday in June. And if you want to be a part of that, just text in GPC uh, 20 to uh, 9700. We're going to have party. We're going to have fun. We're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be looking into the future. We're going to be celebrating the past. It's going to be a great time. But I want you to know that in my life, there's a stake in the ground. I experience God in some ways in that time that I will forever glean from. Well, whenever you look at the life of Abraham, you see the same thing. That you see last week, if you were with us last week, in last week in chapter 14, we were introduced to a new name for God. One that had never been used in the scriptures, but it didn't mean that God had changed. It just mean that God revealed himself to Abram. And that God was Elion. He was the God Almighty, the God Most High. And again, if you remember back last week, there was this major battle, this major fighting that happened four kings against five, and then the three went and ran in the hills, and two others got tarred and feathered. And the other one, special forces of Abram comes to the scene, and he chases them from the southernmost end of Israel to the northernmost end of Israel, and these kings go running for their life. And what he comes back and he explains, experiences as that stake in the ground, I just experienced God the most high. The God above all other gods. There's not another God like him. In chapter 15, we'll learn that God is the God who sees. Next week, excuse me, chapter 16, we'll, we'll learn about the God who sees when we talk about Hagar next week. The God who sees. And then on the, in chapter 17, you see El Shaddai. The God Almighty. And then you see in chapter 18 where God reveals himself as the God who judges. That's when when they're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's praying over Sodom and Gomorrah and he's really learning about the justice of God. But I want you to notice as you work your way through the life of Abram, different points and times in his life, these are flagship moments where he is learning about God, his relationships growing deeper, going wider, getting stronger as he's diving in. Chapter 22, we'll learn about Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. 
And what a story that will be as we come to the end of the Abraham story. But I want you to notice from one chapter to the next chapter to the next chapter that the time and time again that the he, God is revealing himself and showing more of himself because he pursues a love relationship with us that is real and that is personal. And what God wants to do in this love relationship is he wants to show himself to us. He wants us to experience him. This is not a religion you're signing up for. We're not praying that these kids get religion. We're praying that they get a relationship with the God of the universe who wants to show himself off to them as they experience and walk with him. We'll find today that there will be three additional names given to God from chapter 15. Eight different major names for God will be given. God will show himself to Abram because he's a friend of God, because he is diving into that relationship. Why are the names of God so important? Because the names of God reveal the character of God, the nature of God. Henry Blackaby said it this way. He said, the Hebrew name describes person's, uh, a person's character. The name is closely associated with the person and his, ex- and, and his presence. Acknowledging God's name amounts to recognizing who God is. When you are in a friendship relationship with God, you should be growing deeper in that relationship. And how do you grow deeper in that relationship? Through the experiences that you have with God. This week we'll learn he is Adonai. He is the master God. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. There's also, he will be called the shield. Also, he'll be called the reward. So there's all this revelation of who God is as Abram experiences God. But here's what I want you to emphasize. Here's what you got to see. That every one of these builds on. So my obedience to God leads to an experience in God. Okay, God is in me. I'm experiencing him inside of me. Because of that, there's a greater knowledge of God. But because of that, my relationship with God gets even stronger, which then makes me want to obey him even more. So it's literally going to grow our faith, but you got to start at the top. Are you willing to be obedient to what God says? Some people will never get on the obedience track, so they'll never get on the experience track. They'll never get on the knowledge track. They'll never get on the relationship track. You've got to be willing to step into that relationship and say, yes, Lord, whatever. Chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Let's get the context real quickly. It says, after these things, what things are we talking about? Again, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, if you weren't here last week, you're going to miss out. You got to go back and listen to last week's message. After these things, these things, what are these things? These things from the previous chapter, the battle, the five kings against four kings, the special forces that, that Abram goes out, 318 men go out and wax, do a schoolyard beating on the four bully kingdoms from the east. And then now he comes back. Yes, he's bumped and bruised. Yes, I'm sure he experienced loss. Yes, he also experienced victory. Yes, he also experienced the Lord most high. He experienced God and, and he walked with God and God did an incredible work with him in that moment, in that World War Z experience. So those are the things that he's pointing back to. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. Fear not. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, 
What will you give me? For I continue childless. I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Now just hang on to that for just a moment. Because what I want you to see in this is this three moves to an intimate relationship with God. If you want to have that personal, real relationship with God, what does that look like? Well, one, it means, first of all, we talk with God and not to God. We learn to talk with God. Now, we don't talk with people very good these days. We talk to people. We talk at people. We have good monologues where you listen to me as I wax on and rant on on social media. It becomes an echo chamber where we're all saying what we want to say, but we're not listening to what other people are going through. But that's not at all what a healthy relationship looks like. If you get married to somebody and it's a monologue and they never listen to you and you are the one who always has to have the voice, then you're not in a very good marriage. If you're in a relationship with God and it's always a monologue, you're talking to God, but you're not listening to God, it's not a very good relationship. we got to realize prayer is a skill that we learn. Yes, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, but it's also a relationship that we hone. And when you look at Abram and God's relationship, how is he a friend of God? Because he talked with God. There was this communal relationship between the two. In fact, if you look at just the first 13 verses of chapter 15, you're going to find this give and take conversation between God and Abraham. Pop those verses up on the screen. You're going to find in verse 1, God spoke. Abraham spoke in the second one. Abraham spoke the third time. God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. Abraham spoke, God spoke, God spoke. You're going to find an incredible conversation that's going to go back and forth between them. God spoke. Abraham spoke. But notice who spoke more. In your relationship and prayer life, who speaks more? Do you speak more or does God speak more? We have to learn to listen. We have to learn to develop good ears and to have a monologue, uh, excuse me, a dialogue with God. And I love it that when God speaks in this relationship, God initiates it. After these things, go back to that verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. God initiates the conversation. The word of the Lord came to in a vision. And what does he say? Fear not. What's this about? It's very likely scholars believe that, that Abram's come back from war. He's sitting down in the seat of victory. He's not sitting there going, Hey, I got it all. I got it all. I can, I, I can beat it all. 318 men. Bring on the, bring on the Philistines or whomever. I'm ready to take them all on. It's very likely that the first day after a great day is typically a bad day in my life. And so he's probably sitting there after the war going, You know what? They went north. They're going to get. Those four kings are going to get five kings and 10 kings and 20 kings. And they're going to come back and they're going to get us. Do I have, do I have enough soldiers to take care of the next, the next battle? And sometimes it's, it's so crazy how God will give us victory and immediately on the hills of those victory, we'll be doubting God the next day. We kind of forget what God just did. And so the very first thing he said, God said is fear not, fear not. Whenever you see fear first introduced in the Bible, it was because Adam and Eve stepped outside of the will of God. They quit obeying God, and then fear enters in. 
and doesn't ever show up in Scripture and, until then. The very first uh, account in chapter 3, verse 10 is where fear shows up. But again, the first day after a great day is typically a bad day because what Satan does is he begins to attack us. He begins to come at us. But notice what God said. He said, fear not. Why does he say fear not? I am your shield and your reward. You thought you got a great reward from the last battle? Let me take care of your future. Let me be your shield. You remember those fiery darts that came by, by your head that nearly took your head off, that nearly pierced your life? I'm going to be your shield. You remember that post-traumatic stress syndrome that you're going through right now, Abram? Well, guess what? I want you to not fear. I want you to know that I'm with you. So what God is doing in this relationship is he's showing his mastery. He's showing his strength. He's showing his protection. When you think about it, you go to Elijah after he defeats those, those, those bell worshiping uh, prophets on Mount Carmel, calls down fire from heaven. Do you know where he was the next day? He was sitting under a tree wishing that he would die. Satan has a way of getting in our heads right after a victory. What does Jonah do? After God brings the people of Nineveh to faith in him and repentance is had, he goes underneath a tree and he wishes that God would not have saved them. The very next day, the very next day after the battle that Abram has and they had victory in, fear must be creeping in. And I love it that God speaks to the heart, not just to the head. Do you have a relationship. Do you talk with God or do you only talk to God? Listen for his voice. It's sometimes the most still voice, the most gentle voice, and sometimes it's a clap of lightning. But sometimes we got so many other noises going on in our head, we cannot hear the voice of God. Do you talk with him or talk to him only? Number, number two is that we walk with God. I want you to see in verse 2, I want you to see again in verse 8, how Abraham addresses God in a certain way. And this is where the word Adonai comes in. It's the very first time Adonai shows up in Scripture. Why is that important? Because it's going to show up over 770 times hereafter. It is as if God has revealed himself to Abram as he is the Adonai. He is the Adonai God, Yahweh, which is another name for God. It's the most holy name for God. So he says, you are Adonai Yahweh. You are the Lord God. What does Adonai mean? Adonai means master. You are my master. God, you are sovereign. You are controller. Yes, I'm I'm living in the post-traumatic stress syndrome of my battle from just yesterday. But God, I am believing that you are going to get me through this. I am trusting that you are going to be the controller, the owner, the master. God is sovereign Lord and he recognizes him as sovereign Lord And notice what verse 6 says. As he gets to the end of this prayer before he goes into his next prayer, because this whole chapter is about the prayer and the relationship and the conversation between between the two. If you go to verse 6, you find this parenthetical statement that let me just tell you this, maybe, some scholars believe, maybe the most important 
words of the Bible. Why? Why are they the most important words? Well, Paul quotes from them three different times. And in Galatians, you can jot these down, Galatians 3, 6, Romans 4, 3. And also it's quoted in James, James chapter 2, verse 23. So it's quoted in the New Testament. What is this phrase? And he be- in fact, it's so, if it's the most important verse in the Bible, let's all read it together out loud. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it as to him as righteousness. He believed. He believed. What, what does the word believe here? It's the whole idea of putting the full weight of yourself onto something. It's not that he believed it up here. That's, that's part of the belief. It's that that he put the whole control, the whole care, the whole leadership, the whole weight of his life onto this. Now, that becomes really important here in just a moment. Because what happens out of that is there's a transformation that happens. He believed. Now, why is this belief so important? Because we to this day know when we go to the New Testament, it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. That's belief. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of results of your works or your good works or your good behavior. You didn't get where you are with Jesus because of anything that you and I did. In fact, that got us in a hot mess. So that we would boast. Here's the point. The people of the Old Testament are saved the same way the people of the New Testament are saved. They're saved because they believe. It is a gift of God, not because he sacrificed enough times, not because he did the Ten Commandments, not because he did it because he believed. Now look back at that verse. I want us to get our pronouns in in order here. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And what did he, God, do? He counted. He reconciled the books. See, all of us live with a sin debt. Every single last one of us live with a sin debt. Every one of us, we get to embrace the fact that even these precious kids, even these two precious ones at the end, were born selfish. We're born broken. We're born in need of a savior. Every single one of them, well, every single one of them is going to need to come to the full knowledge and believe in the Lord. And when they believe in the Lord, God is going to reconcile their account. Not because of what they did, but because of what he does. He imputes righteousness onto our account. You know what that means to me? When I look at me in the mirror, when I look at my rap sheet, when I look at my thought life, when I look at my words, when I look at some of the things that I do, when I look in the mirror, sometimes I see nothing but shame and guilt and brokenness. But you know what happens when God looks at me? When he opens up the book on Mike McDaniel, not because of what Mike McDaniel did, but because of what Jesus did and what God did in my account, he sees Mike is made righteous. He is made righteous. I counted it to him as righteousness. Why? Because he put the full weight of his life onto me. The care, the control, the command and control of his life was given over to me. That's how I know that I am a child of God, not because of what I did. So I want to not only talk with God in a relationship, but I want to walk with God. Because I'm believing in faith, giving him the full weight of my life into his hands. 
But I also want us to see that we must learn to live with anticipation of God. We are not only saved by faith, but we walk by faith. And we have to have this level of anticipation of what's out there and what's around the corner. Not everything gets tied up in a nice, neat bow. And we, we, we have to walk by faith. And in fact, even he, uh, Abram in this whole uh, encounter with him, with God will actually have a, uh, uh, what's called a, a theophany, an appearance of God. We talked about the pre-incarnate ex- expression of, of Jesus coming to earth. He actually has one of these in this passage of scripture. As you go on reading, he, you, you can see in verse 7 how the conversation with God continues. And, but here's the big question for Abram. He says, okay, God, chapter 12, you promised me that we would be a father of a nation. I'd be a father of a nation. Listen, it's been 10 years, and he's still not a father. You talk about living in anticipation? Ten years since the first original promise was given to Abraham. He is now no longer 75. He's now 85. And he still doesn't have a child. How long will you wait for God? He's waiting 10 years. And he's looking at God and he's saying, God, but I still don't have a son. Again, we are called to live in anticipation. In fact, it becomes so great. If you look at verse 12, it says that he became dreadful. And a darkness covered him. So not only do we see a friend of God, not only do we see Abraham struggling with fear in the very first verses, but we also now see him struggling with depression. I want you to, I want you to gain some semblance of hope in this, that you can be a child of God, saved, made righteous with Christ, and still struggle with fear and still struggle with depression. But how are you going to get through that? How are you going to work through that? Something about it is you're going to have to put a stake in the ground and rest on those promises of God that he is still at work. Proverbs 30 verse 5 needs to become one of your verses. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield. Ironically, that's the very first word that he uses to describe himself in chapter 12. This is in Proverbs. This is hundreds of years later, and they're still recognizing God as a shield. You know what? He was a shield for Abraham. He was a shield for Solomon, and he is a shield for us. Can you, will you believe and anchor your life on this? See, God, also it says in Titus chapter 1, God who does not lie promised. See what happened with Abram. As he's waiting for God, God's still working. A life principle for us, while we're waiting, God's still working. He's working on us. He's working on others. He's working in the circumstances. Remember I told you in the beginning of this whole series through Genesis, it's not our story, it's God's story. And we just get to be a part of God's story. So we got to realize that as we're living out God's story, that it's, not, it's about his timing, not our timing. It's about his plan, not our plan. And so God was going to do something in Abram's life, but it wasn't the time. But what Abram needed to do is rest on the promises. If you look at verse 13 and following, I need to read this because this is so important to understanding the the whole covenant relationship. Beginning in verse 13, 
After this bout of depression, if you will, then the Lord said to Abram, so now God is still talking to him, know for certain that your offspring, again, can you imagine Abram? He said, yeah, 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 I've heard this before, God. Ten years ago. Yeah, I got it in my journal. I can pull it up. You said ten years ago I'm going to have a kid. You're talking about my offspring. will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and there will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Who's he talking about? Talk about the people of Israel who go to Egypt for 400 years. That's going to happen later on, hundreds of years later. But yet, Abraham's being told this early on. But I will bring judgment on that nation, that's Egypt, and that they serve and afterward, and then they shall come to, uh, uh, with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Basically, you're going to die. So basically, Abraham would not see all of this. And you shall be buried a good old age. And they shall come, they, speaking of the generations behind you, they shall come here in the fourth generation. Now go down to verse 17. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. And behold, the smoke of fire and the pot with flaming torch passed between uh, the pieces, uh, which is the meat that was divided. And I can't go into all that. Don't have time for that. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What was the covenant? To your offspring, I will give this land. Abram would not even, he would always live as a sojourner. He would never live with a a citizenship stamp, with a passport to that land of Canaan. He would always be a sojourner. But future generations would be blessed. I want to bring you back to what God said in Genesis chapter 12. If you're with us, he gave us the purpose for the blessing of God. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. To this generation and the next generation and the next generation, four generations before the people of Israel would ever occupy, live in that land and it be their land. Not even Moses would make it. So what I want us to see is that God does his blessings. God does his work. God does his salvation. Not just for me and my little story and my little blop in time, but he does it from this generation to the next generation, to the next generation. 28 years ago, on a stage at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, my daughter, who stood here just a few moments ago, was in the pastor's hands um, as we did a baby dedication. And so, yes, we were young We'll talk about hairdos and all that kind of stuff some other time. I have a point to make. February of this year, February of this year, we were blessed to have two twins born into our family. Now, publicly, I've been given permission to tell you that Caleb and Michaela are expecting and we'll have another child soon in November of this year. Yes, God is blessing our family. But I want you to know something. We had no clue this was going to be on February 28 years ago. 
And 28 years ago after that, in February, two twins would be born. God is blessing. We prayed then, God make us good parents, godly parents, so that we'll raise up a generation that will be good and godly. And they're standing on the stage today saying, we want our kids to grow up, James and Salem, to be good and godly from one generation to the next. See, God blesses us now that we would be blessed in our own singular life. He blesses us to be a blessing to the next generation. We're going to sing. Or maybe your family needs to be sung over. A song about the blessing. So if you need to stand and sing with us, stand and sing with us. If you need to be sung over the blessing, let it be sung over you. Father God, this is your time and space. We give it to you. We thank you that you don't call us to religion, but you call us to a relationship that's real and personal. You call us to talk with you, to walk with you, and to anticipate you throughout the days of our life. May we be a generation that raises the next generation, that raises the next generation, that raises the next generation to walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.